In this lecture, we're going to cover some of the pediatric urologic diseases. We're going to start with posterior urethral valves. All right, these are posterior urethral valves, not ureters, but urethra. And so the pathogenesis of this is in the name. The, posterior, the urethral valves are too posterior. So there's difficulty getting urine out. This is a congenital defect that will be present from birth. So the problem is that the kidneys can make urine no problem, but the urine can't get out of the bladder. And so as the bladder begins to fill, it distends and backward pressure goes into the ureters and into the kidneys that back pressure can cause renal failure. The way this is going to present is a baby with zero urine output in day one. Even if they have dysfunctional kidneys, some urine will come out, but in posterior urethral valves, there's almost none. It indicates an obstruction. Because they had developed with this back pressure for so long, there's likely to be an element of renal failure. That is an elevation in the creatinine that you do not expect in a kid. If you have some history, you might be able to have found some oligohydramnios. Remember that in utero, the fluid in the amniotic sac is an indicator of renal perfusion. That is, if there are too little amniotic fluid, it means the baby's not peeing enough. And generally, it means ureteroplacental insufficiency, but it can also be indication of renal disease. So in a kid who can't get urine out, since the amniotic sac is made up of fetal urine, if they can't get the urine out, that sac never develops. So you'll have low fluid in the amniotic sac because of low urinary output. You diagnose this first by putting in a catheter. Because what you want to see in a post-obstructive uropathy is residual void, post-void residuals. You're going to see urine flow out into the catheter because the catheter relieves the obstruction and all the urine comes out. To definitively diagnose this, you're going to use a voiding cystourethrogram. And of course, to treat this, you want to relieve the obstruction, so you're going to leave the catheter in. You're going to relieve the obstruction and constantly drain whatever urine is made. If the baby isn't that bad, you'll be able to do surgery, and then you can resect and re-implant the urethra. Unfortunately, if the obstruction was really bad to the point where it had no urine output and oligohydramnios, it's likely that the back pressure has led to renal failure and the kid may need a transplant. So this is a fairly malignant disease. Let's move into a disease you can diagnose on the first day of life that really isn't so bad at all. It's more cosmetic. That is epi and hypospadias. To go from the normal female anatomy to male anatomy, you essentially have to zip up all of the structures. And as you zip them up, you pull them out. 
And so if you zip from the top and the bottom, eventually they're supposed to meet at the tip of the penis. That's where the urethra meets. Wherever the two zipper lines meet, the urethra is. If one side zips too fast or the other zips too slow, the urethra will not be at the midpoint. It will not be at the tip. It'll either be on top or on the bottom. If it's on the ventral surface, that is the bottom, it's hypospadias. If it's on the top, the dorsal surface, it's epispadias. And this is primarily a cosmetic issue, except that with epispadias, it's going to be very difficult to urinate without peeing in the kid's face. So if it's on the ventral surface, the urethra is on the ventral surface, it's hypospadias. If it's on the dorsal surface, it's epispadias. Epi on top of dorsal surface, hypo on the bottom ventral surface. The patient is going to present just with a cosmetic defect. And you're going to see the defect on clinical inspection. The most important part about this disease for your test is that you know to never circumcise. This is because as the child grows, you're eventually going to rebuild his penis. You're going to re-implant the urethra at the ventral surface. You're going to re-implant the urethra at the tip. The way you do that is by using the foreskin. So if you circumcise the kid, you will, he will lose the ability to have his penis rebuilt to look normal. Right, that is epihypospadias. Let's move on to urethropelvic junction. It is the junction between the ureters and the pelvis. Essentially what this is, is a narrow lumen where the ureters connect to the bladder. And what it does is essentially presents as an obstruction. It's not actually an obstruction, but only when there is high flow through the ureters it presents like an obstruction. And so most kids don't have large diuretic loads. So most kids go through their life completely normal. They never know they have a problem. Then all of a sudden they'll have a large diuresis. That equals high flow higher flow than the obstruction can handle. So this is going to present as colicky abdominal pain. It's going to present like an obstruction. But how do kids get that large diuretic load? Now, the question could be nice and say that the kid had a contest to see how many gallons of water he could drink in an hour. But really, what this usually presents is the teenage kid who has his first alcohol binge. He drinks a lot of beer, so there's a lot of volume, and he alcohol's a diuretic. So all of a sudden, the normal kid suddenly has sudden onset of colicky abdominal pain with the diuresis that then spontaneously resolves. It spontaneously resolves because the diuretic load resolves, and he's back to normal flow. The diagnosis is made with an intravenous pilogram, and you'll see the stenotic point. 
It can also be made with ultrasound if there's enough obstruction to cause mild hydro. And the treatment is either stenting or surgery. You can also have him avoid the diuretic loads, but being a teenager, it's more likely that you're just going to have to fix it. The next disease is low implantation of the ureter. In this disease, you've got one ureter that connects to the bladder. That's normal. But you've got another ureter that implants too low and implants directly into the urethra. That's abnormal. The product of this is actually pretty interesting. In, in boys, it's asymptomatic, and they may not even know they have it. But in girls, it makes sense anatomically. So the, when the first ureter inserts into the bladder, it's going to have normal function. The girl is going to fill her bladder up, she's going to sense the urge to void, and she's going to void. At the same time, the ureter that's implanted too low is going to bypass the sphincter, such that there's always going to be a constant leak. For some reason, boys are asymptomatic, but girls have this clinical picture. Girls are going to have normal voiding and constant leak. Now, if you saw this in an adult, you'd assume this is a fistula. Kids don't really have very good reasons for having fistulas, so think about low implantation of the ureter. The diagnosis is made with an intravenous pilogram that shows you the ureter is too low, and the treatment is made with reimplantation. This is generally done before toilet training. She will have this from birth. Let's move on to vesiculo urethral reflux. So far we've talked about a bunch of diseases with urine having trouble getting out. In this disease, the valves that are supposed to protect urine from going from the bladder back up the urinary system fail. You've got two-way valves and you shouldn't have them. Because urine can go back up the urinary tract, so can bacteria. And so you should suspect this disease if you've got frequent UTIs. Kids really don't have good reasons for UTIs, except maybe girls who are learning to toilet train who may wipe up. They may cause some frequent UTIs, but they're not going to be that often. And in particular, if bacteria can ascend, they'll just be more than just UTIs. If they've got frequent UTIs or they've got any pylo, that is a major red flag. Kids don't get pylo unless there's usually an anatomical defect. The diagnosis is made with intravenous pylogram, which shows a reflux, and the treatment is surgical repair. Now, what you may see on your test is another option. Surgical repair is the best treatment, but one of the options may be watchful waiting. You can do empiric antibiotics, prophylactic empiric antibiotics, and wait. Because sometimes kids will outgrow this. They just get better with time. But if someone has had pyelonephritis, 
as a result of a congenital defect, better to fix it than to wait. If you've diagnosed it and the symptoms aren't that bad, then you can justify the prophylactic antibiotics and watchful waiting. How long do you wait? Not really sure. Not a question you'll have to answer on your test. One of the diseases where you can make a huge life-saving change is cryptorchidism. That is, by definition, the undescended testes. This is going to be pretty obvious. In the newborn, you're going to feel that there's an absent testes. The diagnosis is clinical. You've made it just by feeling it. And the treatment goes like this. You give it one year to descend on its own. Watchful waiting. If it doesn't descend in one year, you, the urologist, go up and get it. Then, after puberty, after the testicle does what it's supposed to do, after it produces testosterone and allows him to go through puberty, you have to remove the undescended testes. Even if it descended, even if you brought it down, it retains the potential, it retains the increased risk of testicular cancer. So even if you bring it down or if it descends on its own, the undescended testes you originally found must be removed, but do so only after puberty, generally around 18 to 20 years old, to prevent him from developing testicular cancer. Increased risk to testicular cancer in an undescended testes. Bring it down so it's functional and can contribute to puberty, and then take it out when you're done. We're going to close with a brief mention of hematuria. Unless the hematuria occurs in the presence of extremely large trauma, Kids should never have hematuria. Kids don't pee blood. Adults do. There's lots of reasons why someone might have hematuria. But a patient who presents with either painful or painless hematuria, regardless, any blood in the urine is indicative of a congenital disease or a cancer. In a kid, you need to be aggressive with your workup for hematuria, more so and be more worried than in an adult. And so that workup is going to begin with an ultrasound. Ultrasound will let you see the bladder, the ureters, and the kidneys. And if there's a mass, of course, you're going to go after it. The intravenous pilogram is also going to give you a good view of the internal structures of the renal system. And the instinct in an adult with hematuria is to get a CT scan. But you're trying to rule out cancer, not give it to them. So kids don't get CT scans. The radiation burden is too high. And the treatment for hematuria is going to depend on what you find because it is almost always a congenital defect which needs to be removed or a cancer which needs to be aggressively staged 
and resected. And this is the only time where you might be allowed to do a CT scan, and that is to stage a cancer. So in this lecture, we covered a number of the pediatric urologic diseases. Each one was unique to itself. Each one has its own history, its diagnosis, and its treatment. There's nothing really that brings these together. You just have to know the details of each one. That is pediatric urologic disease.